Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steyer-Blondie. This is Roland Ozebal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Toronto, Canada was a haven for ska in the early to mid-2000s. There was a ton of bands in this vibrant scene, including Stop, Drop, and Skank, the ska band that pup frontman Stefan Babcock played in as a teenager. The Flatliners were another band in that scene. They played angry, political, horn-free ska punk, and eventually landed a record deal with Canadian label Stomp Records. Their debut record, Destroyed to Create, released in 2005, was one of Stomp's most successful records. After that album, the Flatliners signed to Fat Records, and those ska elements fell away. We brought on singer-guitarist Chris Creswell to ask him about the Flatliner ska era and to find out if the band would ever ska again. Flatliners were one of the ska punk bands that hit in that era where I wasn't listening to ska punk. Mm -hmm. And I'm so mad at myself that I hadn't heard this record before. It's so good. It's a really good record. And, you know, usually when you think of a band who started ska, then moved away from it, you're like, oh my God, let's, what's their ska album going to be like? And it's, you know, you think it's going to be embarrassing. Not at all embarrassing. Good music, like very serious, like angry, dark ska punk. Yeah, to me, it sounds like a like a middle ground between Suicide Machines and and Cap Down. Like those are the reference points. I feel like I hit with it. Their first record, the ska one, was on Stomp Records. Yeah, the biggest ska label in Canada, and it was actually a very successful record for them. I was reading it was actually one of their more successful records of that time. Amazing. And that, I mean, that may really makes sense with the uh, the bigwig tie-in, right? Oh, yeah. Bigwig was really big in Canada. And there's a small chance Flatliners are going to play some of these Scott Punk songs again. Or will they? Or will they? Where's that show going to be at, Aaron? It's going to be at Fest. Fest? Yeah. Hey, Fest, next year, In Defense of Ska. You guys, you needed to have us there, okay? <laughs> In 2016, you guys uh, made some uh, beer cozies, some red beer cozies. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, right? I wish I didn't, but yes, of course (laughs) I do. (laughs) Make Flatliner Ska again. (laughs) Now, I know it was a joke, but uh, where where did the joke come from? Well, at that time, like, we didn't think that the world would be so stupid to actually elect Donald Trump, you know, like, into (laughs) office. So we were like, this is hilarious. Like... This is a great joke. 
and then you know and obviously over the years we've uh we've I think forced our fan base into uh, coming along the ride with us through some twists and turns musically. And we thought that'd be great. You know what I mean? That'd be a great joke. And then fucking look what happens. Like Jesus Christ. I, I so regret making those beer cookies, not because of what it says on it, but who it was referring to. You know what I mean? Uh, God damn it. I mean, I can't believe the world is so fucking stupid, but here we are. <laughs> now the, the reaction you got from your fans was pretty polarizing. Like, <laughs> Some were like, yes, this is all I've ever wanted. Yeah. And other people are like, ska, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that people don't realize about us is like we never, even as we, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm already defending myself on this show. Uh, but as we moved away from, you know, most songs being ska and all this kind of stuff and like like experience these uh, and like explore these stylistic kind of like corners and changes and stuff. Like we never stopped being fans of it. You know what I mean? Um, I know it's yeah. easy to just sit here and say that, but it's true. So it was, I mean, like we thought we were just like, I mean, we knew what we were doing. Like we, we were making a joke that we, we thought would, you know, uh, give maybe some people who really love the, the beginnings of our band, uh, some, some really, uh, a huge sense of false hope, which was not fair of us to do. <laughs> we realize that. But we've always tried to also have a bit of a sense of humor with what we do. You know what I mean? Like our songs, in subject matter typically so serious that it's been it's been another point of ours to like try to you know come across like we're not taking ourselves that seriously though and 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 no one else should take us you know too seriously either um but man you put that out there that you that you're considering or whatever you know even just just joking about making your band ska again and people people latch on to it holy <laughs> so in in your set none of those songs from the first record get played uh we'll play fred's got slack still sometimes okay we played there's a problem recently um where did we play that we played it we did like a we did a show in toronto like kind of a last minute small show in toronto uh at our friend's bar hard luck and we played both those songs back to back which was cool nice yeah 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 but like i mean it gets harder every time, you know, even if our first record wasn't a ska record, like it's, it's, you're hard pressed to see a band live that's got more, like, you know, that has a handful of records that still plays a lot off their first record. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's just the nature of being a fan of your own band, you know? Sure. Um, and maybe it's not true for every band, but I think like, basically what happens is people will yell out Fred's Got Slacks after a song like three. And then we'll say, yeah, yeah well, we, we've, we've planned for this show. Like we've come a long way. Like we're, you know, we've traveled here as a band. We wrote some ideas down on a piece of paper in front of us that we want to play. <laughs> so like we got some ideas and then, you know, those people hopefully laugh. I think they're drinking a beer out of that koozie we're talking about. And then um, we continue to do our set. And then a few songs later, they yell it out again. So what we like to do is, uh, is, um, <laughs> it's way to the very end <laughs> to play it. <laughs> but then it's great. Before you made the joke, had you gotten several comments from fans asking you to be Scoggin? Did the joke come from something like that? Or was it just out of nowhere? That's exactly why we did it. Because everyone ever since our first record has been like, where's the ska? Even on records, <laughs> even on records that had ska songs still. I mean, there are like ska elements on The Great Awake and Cavalcade, you know? And, mm -hmm. uh, and people are still like, not enough. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I, know, I, I now know what you want from us. 
well, I, we don't know how much we can really give you. I, I don't know if, if we'll ever be able to really satisfy your need for this ever again. But like the <laughs> records that you hopefully love are still there. And, uh, you know, like me, we might surprise you one day, but no, that's exactly where the joke came from. Cause it was from, from the jump. Once we kind of, you know, like put the great awake out, people were like, no, there's not enough. There's not enough. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so the flatliners come from, um, the early 2000, early mid two thousands, Toronto, the greater Toronto scene. Um, that's right. Stefan Babcock from the band pup came on our show and, uh, he talked about the stop, drop, and skank years. And, um, oh, yeah. So it's my understanding you guys are from the same scene, right? Yeah, we played with them back in the day. Wow. I think we're, I don't know if we're maybe a couple years older than Stefan and the Pup guys. I don't know if that's true, but we're around the same age. Uh, and yeah, we played, we played with, uh, with, with them back in the day. I mean, like, you didn't have to be a ska band to play with ska bands back then in the Toronto scene. Like, there were, like there's a there's a band from Canada called Protest the Hero. I don't know if you guys are familiar with. Yeah. They're more way more of like a metal band now, but like they started as kind of like a propagandy death by stereo kind of like you know like technical punk band, and we started as a basically a Suicide Machines tribute band, and uh, we played together all the time. I mean we know we we met those guys when we were all fifteen sixteen, and uh, that was kind of the beauty of of growing up where we grew up was that. And maybe it's the same everywhere, but that's, that was just our our sole experience. But obviously, was that so many shows we played? Almost every show we played, like the lineup was pretty eclectic, and there was a lot of ska actually. So it wasn't it wasn't you know uh, it wasn't outlandish to have more than one ska punk band on the show. It also wasn't outlandish to have a full ska show all the time either. But there was it was just as uh, it was just as uh, you know like much a thing that you'd have like a ska band and a metal band and a street punk band and like a i don't know like even sometimes like a fucking new metal band you know what i mean it was kind of cool could you describe stop drop and skank i mean they were kind of a different kind of band than you guys since you guys like you said more in the suicide machines vein they were a bit more in the i want to say early streetlight manifesto vein i feel like that's that that's it like and i think that you know, like even though the like Streetlight and Catch Twenty Two, obviously, and Mustard Plug and the Planet Smashers and Big D and the Kids Table and like the Pie Tasters. I mean, well, the Pie Tasters maybe a, a bit of a different band than all those I just mentioned, but a lot of those that kind of era of ska and that style of ska was something that we really loved and still do. But the stuff that really like interested us from the jump was yeah, like the Suicide Machines, all the Crack Rock Steady stuff. Um, you know, like against all authority, voodoo glow skulls, like kind of like the I don't know, like the more like kind of minor, darker kind of stuff. And like the Suicide Machines always had just straight up like blistering punk songs too, right? So that's kind of where, oh, totally. and obviously a lot of that stuff, well, all that stuff is born out of bands like Op Ivy, but even like Op Ivy had like some pretty dark songs, you know. So even like take warning has such like a melancholy kind of vibe to it, but it's such a minor chord song. You know what I mean? That it's that kind of stuff really resonated um, big time with us. Whereas, yeah, I think like stop dropping skank was more, yeah, just kind of like not all major key, but um, happier sounding maybe in general, like a little more on the up. <laughs> the way yeah. it took, it only took eight minutes to make an upstroke joke. I got more. <laughs> I got more. <laughs> But he kind of described it as being a band with, um, at times, a lot of horn players and a kind of a rotating cast of horn players. 
So the the experience wasn't always the same when you saw them. I mean, man, it was so long ago. Like it was, it was so long ago. And I mean, you gotta you 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 guys know better than anyone that like you if you're playing if you're playing with local ska bands like typically the horn section is different every show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Sometimes the merch guys getting up there. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But it's uh, no, I honestly, I, I couldn't even say. I mean, like we played together a couple times back in the day, you know what I mean? But it was, it was yeah. so long ago that uh, I couldn't tell you. But I do, but I do remember like the style, you know. I do remember how it was kind of like, yeah, like we, as many for as many ska punk bands, you know, around home and on the road that we played with back in the day, like we were, we were always more of like the just just drawn to like the minor stuff. Um, and I feel like they were, yeah, just more of kind of like the, just a little, like not even poppier, just a little happier sounding. Or something. Yeah. What, was it a conscious decision for you guys to play ska, but not have horns or did you ever dabble with having horns? I mean, like we kind of dabbled for a minute on a, a song, you know, uh, the last song mm-hmm. on the great awake has, has horns, but that was already when we were kind of getting into like rocket from the crypt and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like that sure. element of brass in a band. Um, no, I mean, like, I think realistically, we were 14, 15 when we started the band. And I mean, we didn't, we, we weren't really thinking a lot of things through uh, that age. <laughs> and, and I can't tell you why, but I mean, eventually, well, pretty quickly, I should say, people started like, kind of like commenting on that. And we were like, yeah, I mean, we don't like, again, like not to, not to fucking say the same thing over and over again, but it was it was those bands that we really love. We're like, those guys don't really have horns. Like, you know what I mean? Like maybe there's like a suicide. I mean, there are some suicide machine songs with, with horns on them and stuff like that, but we were kind of more just like, nah, we're just going to be like, you know, like the stripped down, like kind of basic setup for a band, but play Scott punk, you know, we also didn't really know many horn players. <laughs> yeah. That helps to like, um, I mean, the album still sounds pretty darn good. Thank you. I mean, considering, you know, I think one of the downfalls of like a young ska punk band is, you know, if the horn players aren't that, aren't that hot. I mean, dude, I, I totally agree. And I think that, I mean, brass instruments are, are hard to play and you gotta, you do have to nail it. You gotta nail it. And it's easier to kind of fuck up a distorted guitar. When you're 15, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> than it is to like, Absolutely. Yeah. Go for it for like, you know, the trumpet part that should be in, in like a cool, like swooping from unison to harmony with the trombone and all this like really, really <laughs> like in, in intricate music theory. Uh, if you're, if you're fucking it up that it's painful sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I have one more pup question. And do you, I don't know if you guys stayed friends, uh, you know, from the sky years on, but do you recall the first time you saw or heard of pup and, and was like, Oh my God. What happened? <laughs> So like yeah, between the ska years and then them becoming pup, like we I I hadn't we hadn't seen those guys in in a long time, and then because you know our like our encounters together were were pretty minimal, like way back in the ska days, and then um, they were called Topanga before they were called Pup, mm-hmm. and we didn't play with them, I don't think, but I saw them at a show um, that I think it was at Sneaky D's, a bar in Toronto I worked at for a long time actually, and then. A friend of ours, a mutual friend of the Flats and Pup, uh, named Menno, who used to be in a band called The Delegates from Montreal, awesome ska punk band. And then they, uh, he went on to do a band called Colorado for a long time in Canada, who split up a few years ago. Menno's just always been like, you know, uh, he's a very super creative dude, old friend of ours. He runs a label 
um, with, I think, most of the other Colorado people called Royal Mountain in Canada. And uh, he showed me, he sent me like the, the self-titled pop record like a few months before like it came out on Royal Mountain. Because before it came out on Saiwan, it came out on Royal Mountain. And a little bit before that, he was like sending it to some friends. And I was like, oh, this is, I like Stefan has such a distinct voice. Like, this is the Topanga guy. He's like, yeah, this is them. They're, they're called Pup now. And I heard that record. And I mean, look what happened. Like, I'm not surprised. <laughs> like, um, it, it, it blew me away. I mean, like that first record, especially just like really grabbed me and everyone else that heard it. Right. And then, yeah, like now we're, we've been buds. I mean, we, we played with them around then, you know, a bunch and, and kind of like put it together that we'd played all those ska shows together way back in the day. And then, yeah, we've been like buds ever since. It's cool. I mean, I haven't seen Sock Nester the other day, actually, but before that it had been a long ass time, long, long time. They came out fully formed. I mean, obviously yeah, there was the, the, the bands before that and Topanga and stuff, but by the time they were pup, it was like, this is a solid band. Totally. Absolutely. And I mean, and they have such their own sound, yeah. you know what I mean? Which is like really cool. And like for, a music nerd like myself and so many other people who like can like sit there and just kind of study it uh, like the records and then like see it live. And it's, yeah, man, it's, it's really like, they really nailed like their own thing, which is hard to do. It's really hard. Sure. To do. And I don't think they try. I don't know how hard they tried to do that. <laughs> I think they just kind of, it may have just happened. I mean like that, that can happen with very talented people. So the, this Toronto scene that we're talking about revolved around uh, this place called the big bop right yeah and so this is a three-story venue with uh with three venues essentially in each story is that how you describe it yeah it was yeah let me think it was two stories the cathedral with a k of course because you got to keep it kind of punk spell things wrong (laughs) um that was on the main floor and upstairs was the reverb and holy joe's so the cathedral and the reverb were like similar sized venues i think the cathedral was a little bigger and then holy joe's was also on the top floor maybe you had to go up a couple more stairs but either way holy joe's was like the small joint in there and uh, i mean that was like every almost every touring band i saw play in toronto when i was a teenager like starting to go to punk shows like you know, taking the, the the bus and the subway into the city from the burbs and going to a show, like almost every show was either at the reverb or the cathedral. Uh, more like the local shows would have what happened at Holy Joe's. Um, but aside from a handful of shows that were at like bigger places, like that was the spot, you know, that was definitely the spot. Is that where you guys played primarily? Yeah. Like that's where we played our first show in Toronto. It was at the reverb. Um, and we'd played between the reverb and the cathedral like a lot. I mean, eventually, you know, like more places open, like there's a place called the rocket for a long time. That's now like a, I think it's like a Thai restaurant. I think a lot of these places turned into like stores because <laughs> now, <laughs> now sadly enough, like the big bop building is like a crate and barrel. And for a long time <laughs> when they, yeah, when they closed it, the building was like condemned and they, it was this big purple, hideous, but beautiful eyesore when it was the big bop. It was so cool. And then they, they condemned it. They closed it. The venues closed and all this stuff. And then like for a couple of years, it was under renovation. And then they, they announced that it was going to be like a furniture store. And they actually brought in the original sign to like hang 
above the landing kind of going up from like the first to the second floor of this like really expensive furniture store. And I was like, yeah, that sign is like obviously cool and a part of history, but like that thing's disgusting. Like this place was disgusting. <laughs> it was, it was just funny that they, I mean, they obviously cleaned it up, but it was just a really funny like vestige of like how punk that intersection and that area of Toronto like used to be. And I mean, obviously it tells all this time at this point, the area got gentrified and has changed. And that kind of is just like the modern tale of most cities but i mean so much happened in in that building you know so many shows like we played so many shows we went to see so many shows legendary shows like that was that was it man can we talk about one of my favorite things about toronto that doesn't exist anymore squeegee kids oh yeah dude yeah i don't i don't you don't see a lot of squeegee kids anywhere anymore yeah you know can you explain what squeegee kids are? Yeah. So if you were, I mean, typically it was, I mean, th- they were all over, but like the, the hot spots for squeegee kids were Queen and Bathurst. So that's the intersection the Big Bop was at and Queen and uh, Spadina uh, and Queen and University. It was a long Queen was like the big, that's one of the big, um, you know, uh, major st- uh, streets in, in downtown Toronto. And basically you would like, if you were driving, you'd like stop your car at the red light. Um, and then like someone would, walk up to your car like out of nowhere and very quickly like <laughs> like they kind of give you like a millisecond to answer their their question only posed by body language which was like can i wash your windshield and you, almost everyone would say no but it didn't matter they would do it anyways and then like you would get to the point where you're like well shit like i don't have any money like especially if that happened now like who has no one has cash on them anymore right, right. so if you didn't have money or if, or if you were just a, an asshole and like didn't want them to do that and like, or just didn't, didn't want to pay them because you said no, uh, they get fucking pissed at you. <laughs> and they would sometimes get, I mean, if you know, it's depending on like what number of person in a row you were to kind of turn them down for, for money. Uh, they would, you know, like hit your car with their squeegee and shit. And, uh, these are like, these are like, you know, houseless folks who like, a lot of them were kids. I mean, obviously that's where the name squeegee kid comes from, but there was a lot of kids that were like down on their luck and it was, yeah, they were everywhere, man. Yeah. But they're, they're all kind of, you know, punk, hobo, hobo looking kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were mostly punks. Actually, we knew a guy who like moved from the suburbs, like to Toronto to be a squeegee kid. We're like, man, you got like a, you live with your parents. Like you don't have to do this, <laughs> but he, uh, he wanted to do it. He was super punk. That was the dude that actually, uh, showed scott and i um falling sickness back in the day oh yeah nice well the squeegee kids came in came in <laughs> useful i mean you know what i mean you 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 never know where your education will begin around you know <laughs> <laughs> do you recall what um the first scott band or bands you heard was i mean for me it was rancid for sure just because i was born in 87 uh me and all the flats guys are 35 so like that era of music was like, I mean, growing up in the nineties, we we're very grateful for that. But like Rancid was, you know, like one of the first bands I really ever heard or got into kind of on my own volition or maybe through like my older brother. Cause at that point it was like Rancid, Green Day, Weezer, you know, Nirvana, like I guess just kind of ended in Foo Fighters at the start. You know what I mean? Like my first few tapes were like Elcom the Wolves. I got that the first day it came out. Um, my mom drove me to the mall and I bought that. <laughs> I was eight, I think. Um, but yeah, my first tapes were like that, like Pearl Jam 10, 
Um, the first Foo Fighters album, uh, the Unplugged in New York, Nirvana, the Blue Album, and, and Dookie. You know, so I, I mean, yeah, like those ska songs on Outcome the Wolves were like the first ska songs I probably ever heard, you know, and I didn't even know what it was. I just thought it was cool. And like I wanted to dance to it, you know? Yeah. Did So then uh, I assume the path to Op Ivy wasn't a far one and discovering Suicide Machines and some of these other punkier versions of ska probably followed quickly. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I, I, like after that, not only with Rancid to find Op Ivy, but like with you know through like Rancid and Green Day and these these bands, like I I'd go back right, and I would like kind of like then then that was especially through the help of my brother, my older brother, like find the stuff that came before all that that kind of then contemporary stuff or whatever that was like coming out that I really loved. So yeah, then I would get into like, I mean, outside of ska, I was discovering like the dead Kennedys and the clash and sex pistols and the Ramones and go way back to like, you know, that kind of the early 10 years or so of, of punk. And then in the ska world, yeah, it was going back and like discovering op Ivy for sure. Um, and, and then like, you know, it was from, th- from that it was, yeah, it was like against authority and the suicide machines. And then, a little later on it was bands like the code and big d and yeah like it was we got lucky because when we started the band like steve foot from big d and the kids table was like a huge help to our band um and he basically like he was on like the sky is dead tour the mm-hmm. first one and he was like hey like i'm gonna stay at colin from mustard plug's house in a week so send me, here's his address. He's like, yo, here's the address of a guy in a band who loves music, <laughs> which was pretty funny back in the day. And then uh, he's like, send me like, mail me like 10, 10 CDs. So this was after Destroy to Create had come out. I'm kind of jumping forward a, a bunch, but after Destroy to Create had come out like independently. So before Stomp from Montreal put out the record like in stores the summer of 2005, the fall of 2004, we put that CD out like ourselves. We put that record out ourselves. So we knew Big D at that point. We played with them. We had a friendship with them. And man, we were kids, but these bands like took us seriously, which was so cool. And Steve and Matt from the Planet Smashers and Stomp and the Suicide Machines guys were like really like the first batch of people who were like, it doesn't bother me that these kids are 16 years old. <laughs> like, I love that. <laughs> like they, they were, I love that about these guys. They were just like, your band's cool. Like they liked our band. We couldn't believe it. Cause we loved their bands, you know? And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, Steve, Steve would be like, yeah, I'm staying at Colin's house in a week. Uh, mail me 10 CDs. Oh, I'm staying at Eddie from the glow skulls house the week after that. So send him like 10 CDs. And he was just like showing everyone our band, you know? So it was, uh, we were lucky for that, man. It was really cool. And like it, um, I mean, like all this happened between like the years of between like us here, me hearing ska for the first time and, and the rest of the flat dudes hearing ska for the first time, you know, Alchemy Wolves was 94. So that's all between like 94 and like 2006, you know, like it's, that's not that long yeah. really, mm-hmm. you know, um, that all that kind of happens. And then like we get, kind of like the ingrained into this world that we were just like had really fallen in love with. And like before we knew it, um, yeah, it had been 10 plus years or whatever of like loving this music. But that was also like when we were just starting to love music in general, you know what I mean? So I know my point's a little clunky here, but it's just that like, 
it all happened pretty quick. Like we started the band, we we're like 14, 15. So those are very formative years. Like when you're really discovering stuff about yourself and what you like and music was obviously a huge part of that for the four of us. And to get to that point so quickly, really in, 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 in uh, the grand scheme of things, like a little more than 10 years, like it was, it's a little overwhelming. Like now when I think back, I'm like, damn, that happened pretty fucking fast. <laughs> You know? Yeah, that's it's so weird. Like when I think back to my t- teenage, you know, early twenty years playing music and doing stuff, and you're like, oh, like all these things happen in like two years. Whereas like now, now when I think about my life, I'm thinking like, oh, the last ten years, these things happened. But in in the in that period of time when you're a teenager, like everything does seem to all happen super fast. And, and in your memory of them, it's like maybe something happened like two months after this other memory, but it feels like this long period of time. Totally. Yeah. I want to go back a little bit to the big bop. Um, you said you played a lot of shows and you saw a lot of shows. Any shows either that you played or saw that really stick out? Yeah. So we played, we did this tour in the fall of 2006 with Catch-22 in Canada. It was about two weeks. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was like us and Catch-22, the whole tour. And then for the last show, I think it was, or one of the last shows in Toronto, the Suicide Machines joined the tour. And I think that was when... Man, were they still touring a match in some gasoline at that point? Or was it... Oh, shit. I can't remember. Uh, but anyways, it was like... It was... That, at that point, we'd played with the Suicide Machines like a bunch over the course of, you know, a couple years. Uh, and like I said, they were just like very cool to us. And, um, oh, no, I think they must have been touring War Profiteering at this point. Yeah, okay. For sure. Anyways. Um, and I just, for so many reasons, that show just like is still like just burned into my memory. Like it was like really at that point, like we had a friendship with this band. And we had just been taken on tour by Catch-22, who we were big fans of. And the, they were great to us. And the tour was awesome. And then, like, didn't, you know, it, it couldn't have it, it couldn't have been better. And then, of course, the Toronto show is at the Cathedral in the Big Bop. And Suicide Machines headlined that show. And it was just really, really cool. And, like, I got to, like, like Jay, like, brought me on stage. And I sang, man, I sang a song off War Profiteering with him which was sick you know what i mean it was just crazy like i was it was it was just a big it was it was a very meaningful night and then i remember at the end of that show catch 22 were telling um the suicide machines guys about the record that they were starting to like work on and write and it was um they were, oh, Permanent Revolution. Like, yeah, the final Catch-22 album, like the, like the you know, like the concept record um, that was just like around like, um, I mean, uh, Trotsky. Like, it's like very, very like esoteric, very deep cut kind of shit. But they were like, these guys were telling us, these teenagers about all this stuff. And they're like, oh, yeah, we have this like whole like record written about this. And like, it's going to blow people's minds. And like, it's a, it's a sick record. And I remember like, it was a, it was an overtly political record, which I think was the first time Catch Twenty Two had really done that, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were telling they were telling Jay and and the other Suicide Machines dudes about it, and like 
just seeing like the looks on like Jay, like Jay's face when they were telling him about it. He was like, Oh, this is going to be really cool. It just felt like a pretty exciting moment to like be like a, you know, like a teenage fly on the wall for, you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of shit that I always like when I was getting into bands and like falling in love with a record and looking at the liner notes to see who that band thanked and to discover those bands because they're friends, you know, like that's always the kind of shit that I like dreamed those bands would talk about kind of, you know what I mean? They're just like sharing their art and what they're working on and their ideas and stuff. And it was like one of those moments that I got to experience. And it was, it was really cool, man. It was just really, it was cool to see these bands, like just supporting each other. You know what I mean? Like, um, and then a really, I mean, it's not a ska show, but one, one of the most like legendary shows that I think we saw at the cathedral was when Lifetime got back together. They mm. played at the cathedral with the draft. And that was, I think, the only time the draft ever played in Toronto. And it was fucking insane. It was also on 420. And that was this was at the height of us being like stone teenagers and shit. So it was pretty fun. <laughs> it was a beautiful day in the city. And it was, yeah, that was like, that show was, that show cannot be fucked with. So let's, uh, there was actually quite a few ska bands in uh, Toronto in that time period. Um, local bands. Uh, let's, let's run through some of them. You can, I'm going to throw some names at you. Tell me if you remember them, what you remember about them. Hebrew school dropouts. <laughs> yeah, I know the Hebrew school dropouts. Yeah, we played a lot with them. Yeah, they went to like them in a band. Maybe they're on the list called the Makeshift Heroes. Yeah, uh, they all went to Rosedale Heights, which is a, like an art school, uh, kind of like an alternative uh, education school in a cool part of the city. And uh, yeah, we played a lot with those guys back in the day. Damn. Um, did some makeshift heroes became uh, the the band Dinosaur Bones later, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not ska. Not ska. Very indie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's what happens with a lot of ska bands. You know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the Donuts, who later became the Expos. Yeah. Yeah, we played a lot with them, too. They were from one town over from us. Stale Fish? I'm not sure if I wrote that down. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. S-T-A-Y-L-E. F I S H, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, one size fits most. Yeah, I remember one size fits most. Damn, this is crazy. <laughs> um, the Johnstons, the Johnstones, Johnstones. Yeah, okay. dude, the Johnstones. Yeah, those guys were from Ajax, the other side. They're from the east, like east of Toronto. Um, heat scores. I don't even know what I wrote down there the heat scores okay so the heat scores and another band I'm, I'm curious to see if if another band is on your list so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say the name but the heat scores in one other band were the two like, as far as like local bands go were the two most integral bands for us coming up as a young band the heat scores okay. were really the guys to show us like i mean like those like those guys were kind of the guys to like solidify my love for a band like the dead Kennedys, you know, um, for like the punk side of the heat scores. But then those guys were really the guys to kind of like shine a light on like the whole crack rock steady stuff in New York. And that kind of splintered off everywhere. You know what I mean? But like all the like leftover crack choking victim, Indie K no cash, all, all those kind of bands, like the heat scores were really the guys to like show us all that stuff. Yeah. 
Still, still buds with those guys to this day. Oh, nice. Five across the eye. Fuck yeah, that's the other band. I was hoping you bring them up. Yeah, <laughs> so those guys. So five across the eye were from Richmond Hill, like our hometown. And like Nathan, the singer, Nathan Kim is. We're still we're, we're still buds with these guys to this day as well. And Nathan um, was good friends with my older brother Andrew. And so like when we got to the age of like like we heard Five Across the Eye when we were in like grade eight, I think. So this is the year before we go to high school. And um, there was for the for for the year that that me and the Flats guys were in grade nine, the first year of high school. Uh, no, hang on. Let me get this right. High school in Ontario went grade 9, 10, 11, 12. But then there was also OAC, like a grade 13 that you had to do. It was essentially just like, I don't know what. It was just like really preparing you for like college or university or that fucking year you're going to spend in Europe and tell everyone that you fucking discovered <laughs> yourself or whatever the fuck happens. But but um, so my brother and Nathan were the same, were in the same grade. So we ended up like falling in love with Five Across the Eyes music. And then all of a sudden in grade nine and 10, I think it was actually, um, we went to the same school as Nathan uh, and Jared uh, from the bass player. And so like me and the dudes are like legitimately starstruck around this guy that has been friends with my brother for like years at this point. <laughs> and, and we're hanging out, like seeing him around in the halls and stuff for, for grade nine and grade 10 for us. For, a, for grade 12 and OAC for him. And it was fucked, man. Like, it was just so cool. Like, we were so starstruck, but he was so cool to us. And he, like, they recorded, like, an EP uh, at one point. He, like, showed it to us before they put it out. And we're like, oh, my God. Like, it was such an exciting thing to happen. And, like, n- yeah, no joke. Like, Five Across the Eye and the Heat Scores are the two most integral, like, local bands to have ever existed in our eyes. Because without those two bands, I guarantee you our band would have sounded like a pop punk band instead. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We got two more for you. Um, Susie Jacuzzi and the Hot. <laughs> yes, man. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what's the full name? We're still, we're still buds with them too. Susie Jacuzzi and the Hot Tubs. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, do you, have they ever told you the story behind their band name? I mean, like we were all kids. Like I'm sure we asked and they just, it was probably just that it sounded funny. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Aaron, do you know the story? I have no idea. Okay, Sorry, I, I just thought maybe you knew. It. I should. I should have done my research. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it, it did tell that you knew. I was like, oh shit, what, what did I miss? <laughs> uh, suburban wedding. Suburban wedding. I don't remember, but there was a band called Suburban Underdog. Oh, maybe. Oh, that's probably it. See, like I said, my hand sucks. Suburban Underdog was actually that dude Jeff's band that I was telling you guys about. The guy that got Scott and I into falling sickness. So check this out. It was crazy. So Scott and I went to this camp, like this music camp, when we were kids. There was like, it was like band camp. Like we had, there was a guitar program. There was a bass program, a drum program and a vocal program. And they would like, you would like, you would, you would, you would take lessons and stuff. And you'd like learn from these, like a, a couple of these guys that were like, you know, the um, instructors were, I mean, in Canadian terms, it was crazy. It was like Kim Mitchell's guitar tech and stuff like that. It was like some pretty, that's a pretty Canadian deep cut maybe for this podcast. But, um, but it was, it was, we were able to learn from these, like, you know, like, musicians that are like real world like touring experience and stuff like that and they'd put you in a band uh and you would learn a song every day it was like a week-long camp you'd learn a song every day and you'd perform that song that night uh at like a show with everyone so it was really fun it was really cool scott and i went a few years when we were like 10 11 12 
Uh, and one of those years, um, Arif, who became the bass player for Protest the Hero, was there. Um, so that's when we met those guys. He was the first one of those guys we met. And then we met Paul there, our drummer Paul. We met there the third year we went and discovered that he was a sick drummer even then. And then we met Jeff there the first year. And this Jeff dude was like the punkest dude we'd ever met. And he's the guy that eventually, you know, went on to like move to the city and, and uh, for like a summer or something like he was just kind of like, yeah, like squeegee kid and stuff. Like haven't talked to Jeff in years, but that dude, like that dude, like showed Scott and I so much of like what kind of informed our love for music to then, like, I think like then set us up for being really inspired by five across the eye and the heat scores, you know, um, <laughs> like on yeah. a local kind of tip, like, yeah, man, like Suburban Underdog were really cool. And they had like cool, like dark, kind of like, it's hard to describe like the genre because it was so long ago too. And like, I didn't know what was what, but like they had weird, like dark, kind of like discordant kind of songs. Like they just like didn't make a lot of sense. And then they would like just bust into this cool, like minor ska thing for a minute. And that was the moment where everyone in the crowd would be like, Oh, we can skank again and we can dance. <laughs> and then, like they would just get back into like these weird, like kind of jams. Like, yeah, they were, they were really cool. Damn. This is really bringing me back. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask about, there's a compilation called who said ska's dead. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's a release on a label called Cruzwell records. <laughs> it's Cresswell Records, man. That's me. <laughs> That's me. So tell me, what is this? So at this point, yeah, us and the Heat Scores and the Makeshift Heroes and... No, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, us, Makeshift Heroes, the Heat Scores, and, oh my God, Grand Scam. That's the fourth band. Grand Scam, but of course, Scam was spelled S-K-A-M. Right. Oh yeah, as is tradition with ska bands. So, um, <laughs> so, so we were. Oh, I feel terrible that I, that I couldn't think of the name, but this is forever ago. So, we were all friends. The Heat Scores, uh, Susie Jacuzzi in the Hot Tubs, Makeshift Heroes, Grand Scam. Uh, the Heat Scores aren't on the split, though. I don't think they just played the show. I'm getting a little confused. They just played the release show, but. Um, yeah, it was it was Flat Susie Jacuzzi in the Hot Tubs, Grand Scam, and the Makeshift Heroes. And we were all buds and we had like we each had like a few songs recorded. So we were like, oh, like instead of putting out, you know, like our own EP or whatever each, because that would have been on like a burned CD that we'd like print the sleeves out at Staples or Kinko's or whatever and like slap it all together, like we'd all been doing with all the stuff we'd at this point already done. We're like, let's do that, but let's do it together. And then we can like as maybe people that come see the flats or Susie Jacuzzi or Grand Scammer Mixture Heroes at their shows, like they'll hear other bands too. So we like put this together as buds. Um, I mean, we were teenagers and uh, Eddie from the Heat Scores, the singer of the Heat Scores, did the artwork and he, for some reason, just used a picture of me that he had from like a show or whatever and just put it out on, and, on Creswell Records. <laughs> fucking i don't know why but this is like the first recording of bad news that was then re-recorded for destroy to create um on like an early version of destroy to create there was a live version of a song called picking up my brain a really old flat song picking up my brain like studio version if you can call it that um 
only ever appears on who said Scott's death. And then there were two other songs of ours off this that like, I don't think I ever saw the light of day on anything else. Was this, was spill your guts on this or was that on something else? No. So spill your guts. We recorded for, uh, the drummer of the heat scores, Pez, Mark Pezzolato had a studio in his house. And so he, he also was like a town over from us. So, so he had the studio and he wanted like all the like new market scene, the new market of Ontario, that's the town, new market, Ontario, like punk scene and ska punk scene was like extremely vibrant. Like that's where we saw suburban underdog, the heat scores five across the eye. Like there weren't really shows in Richmond Hill that much. They were all in, in new market. And, um, that's where we like played our first couple shows. That's where we met all these bands. So Pez had a studio in his house and he wanted all the bands from like, you know, the area that he was buds with to record a song. He'd record a song for them for free. And then he put it out on this comp Pesmosis. Uh, and okay. that's the only place that Spill Your Guts, or that's the first place that Spill Your Guts appeared. And then I think we must've put it out on, something else after that but that yeah that was like there's only ever one like studio recording of it and that was it yeah the uh, the it was released later uh in, on like a b-sides comp on Fat yeah, we, yeah right we yeah we put it on division of spoils like way later right right right, right. yeah so but i see i saw people mention that several times was that like a fan favorite oh yeah yeah that became like that kind of took place of um I mean, like, sorry, I, I should rephrase what I was going to say. For a while at shows, like, even up until, like, a handful of years ago, like, the like the true, like, early OG heads that were still coming to our shows would either yell out, Fred's got slacks or split your guts. It, it okay. became that level of a song, like, to, to our fans from early on. They were like, we got to hear that song. And it was, like, something obnoxious, like, four minutes or something in like a few different parts and it was, <laughs> i don't know what we were doing the weed definitely works but it was like uh it was um yeah like it was it was a fan fave for sure back in the day did you um did you not put it on the record because you already had it on a comp and didn't want to double up or i can't remember the timeline like man i used to remember this stuff so much better um i can't remember the timeline in which like the pesmosis comp came out and destroyed to create was being recorded i kind of feel like split your guts came after oh okay maybe. but like but in that in that time frame between like the uh the initial like independent release of destroy to create and then the the like commercial official quote-unquote like release the next summer you know what i mean like i feel like it came out between and that's why we didn't put it on i could be wrong honestly <laughs> it's been so long but <laughs> i think that was why Destroy to create. Tell me a little bit about the recording of this record. You recorded at some place called Drive Studio. Mm-hmm. Was that? It sounds pretty good. Was it just a straight up studio? No, this was uh, this was our our friend's basement. Uh, uh-huh. Our friend's mom's basement, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, we so Paul, having grown up in Brampton, which is a town just you know like a few towns over or whatever, but back then it feels like a great distance. Um, he had heard some recordings by a guy named Steve Risen, who was also from Brampton. And he'd like, he was, I, I feel like the stuff Steve was recording for the most part back then was like kind of more like screamo stuff and emo stuff. Cause that was like that, that was also huge. Obviously at that, at that time, cause this is like 2001 or sorry, this is about 2000, 
three and four that we're kind of talking now, but his recording sounded like amazing. Uh, and they just met at a show and, you know, like realized that they lived like around the corner from each other. So Steve had this studio set up in his mom's basement. And like back then we thought Steve was so much older than us, but I feel like he was like, he was like eight years older than us or something like that. We thought he was like way older than us, but uh, just because he had so much like wisdom and like he had a studio and he had, you know, it was, he was doing it. So he recorded our first record. uh, Yeah. Which was destroy to create. And we like chipped away at it a little bit um, in like early 2004 and then put it out in October. Um, and it was, yeah, that was our first, like, not our first recording experience, but our first time making a record. Like, that was at the point where we had enough songs to record an album, you know. So you put it out on Creswell Records? That came out, <laughs> I don't think we used the Creswell Records moniker for that one. I think that just came out like nothing, <laughs> uh, on nothing. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah, and then Stomp picked it up later on. Did you ever release anything else on Creswell? Was it, or was that, that one release? <laughs> that was it. I think that was it. Because our first demo, our first demo before Who Said Scott's Dead came out on Stale Bread Records, which was like <laughs> our buddy's our buddy's record label, quote unquote. But like nothing happened. Like he didn't do anything. You know what I mean? Like I mean, like bless bless their hearts. But it was uh, it was really just the guy being like, hey, like I have this logo. If you want to put on your demo. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they, they definitely like showed our band to a lot of their buddies and stuff, but it was part of that new market scene and stuff like, which was very formative for us, but it was, you know, it was, it was a Creswell Records scenario, just a different name. <laughs> the early songs, the songs on the first record, um, it's like, how, how do you feel? How do you feel like it's holds up? I mean, it's, it's serious. It's not silly. I feel like it's political and, uh, stuff like that. What's your take on it and your your frame of mind at the time when you were writing these songs? I mean, I think my frame of mind at the time, especially when I'm writing the lyrics, is that like, I'm a teenager, so I know everything. But <laughs> in reality, you know nothing. And, you know, so it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm not I'm not in the least embarrassed by by that element of it at all. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm still so proud of that record. And, and the fact that like, we, we put that together, like, you know, when we were that age, um, I don't know, man. I think it's, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I, I think it's, I think it's fucking cool that we were able to pull that off when we were kids. It, we didn't know people would like it. We just thought like, this is fun. This is cool. We have enough songs to do it. Um, but I think like, you know, we were listening to a lot of angry music and a lot of those bands that we've name checked, you know, uh, already so far in this conversation, were like singing about like pretty serious stuff. You know what I mean? Like, even if it was, you know, like, uh, a happy sounding rancid ska song. Like a lot of that has to do with like, you know, like inner city shit and like drug addiction and stuff like that. So it's like, and like the suicide machines were always a fairly political band, especially at a certain point, they became a very political band, you know, and uh, against all authority, obviously were too. And like operation Ivy were. And so I, yeah, I think we were like the lyrics for this record and the early songs in general were all kind of like stylistically, and like thematically like informed by those bands, you know, sure, like yeah. they weren't singing about nothing, you know, not, 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 not usually, you know? And so you, you, you put it out yourself. Um, I assume basically that means you sold it at shows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell me the story about how you connected to stomp. So the connection was made through Steve foot from big D in the kids table. 
And so at this point, yeah, the record's done. My brother, who was the guy that really like helped initially like show me punk music, like lent us the money to make the CDs, which was cool. And then we like did a bunch of shows. And uh, yeah, we'd sell the CDs at shows and it like got the attention of the big D guys. And like I said earlier, like, we would like play shows with them and kind of became friends with them and stuff. And, and the Suicide Machines guys and all these bands we talked about. And then Steve showed the record to Matt Collier from the Planet Smashers and from Stomp. And he really liked it. And I think at that point we played together once or twice. So he got in touch um, with me, a teenage kid, and uh, was like, hey, I really like your record. Like, I would love to put it out. So we're like, fuck, that's crazy. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, sure. So at this point, we're all still in high school. And this was, if I'm not, if I'm remembering correctly, this was a month or two after, like, we put the CD out. You know what I mean? Like, and I, and I say CD because it was only on CD. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, I think this was, like, October or November of, like, the year, yeah, like, of, of 2004. So we talked a bunch about, you know, like what they could do and like anything they could do was cool. That's, we didn't give a shit. We're like, this is Stomp Records. This is amazing. Uh, we're in high school and we're in this band that we, you know, want to tour with after we're done high school and like do play show a lot of weekend shows with now, but like who knows what happens next kind of thing. And um, Matt was basically like, well, like, why don't we put it out in stores next summer, like across Canada and, and elsewhere um, when you guys are like finished high school and I said, oh, wow. I got to talk to my friends. And then I did and then we <laughs> said, hell yeah. So that was kind of it. Like it was the, the relationship was, or the, the, um, the introduction was made by Steve foot and then, yeah, Matt and, and Mike McGee from Stomp records, like really, like really like believed in our band, even though we were kids, which was like, again, like so cool. And it's kind of astonishing really looking back, like, um, how like much they were just like, yep. Like we want to do this with you guys. We're like, really? Like there's a lot of bands out there. You can do this with them. A lot of bands that are older and uh, you know, like know what they're doing, but they, they believed in us, man, which was really cool. And yeah, then the record came out, I think July of 2005 on stomp. So we had like distro across the whole country and then, um, and then, Oh God, they like, they had it, you know, they had distro, I mean, everywhere else too, you know, like, like we had like our record CD was coming out in like England, you know, and like, uh, Japan and shit. It was crazy. So you toured with a uh, big D in like 2006. Probably must've, we played a lot with them around those years. Yeah. Do you know if that was that your first tour tour or had you been touring already? Our first tour was not really a tour. I mean, I feel like that's like every band. <laughs> like our first tour we did July of 2005 and we went to, we played a show in Ottawa, Ontario. So like five hours east of Toronto. And then we went to Montreal for a weekend and, and hung out with Matt and Mike from Stomp, spent all our money and then drove, kept driving east to like Atlantic Canada and uh, played like one show in New Brunswick that no one was at and they were like we have no money so we have to go home <laughs> we like didn't make it to the rest <laughs> of our shows and then we came home and at this point steve who recorded destroy to create and went on to like record a lot of our records uh he like was managing us because we 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 obviously needed help and he was he was down so uh he was kind of like all right like your first tour did not go well we'll book you another tour 
this time we'll go out west. And the same thing happened in that we spent all our money immediately. But uh, we played all the, I think all but one show. Um, And yeah, those first, those early tours are just kind of, you know, we're playing with local bands. um, And shortly after that, we did a tour um, through the States. No, maybe this is now the next. No, maybe then we did the, we did a few shows on the Sky's Dead tour. Um, would that have been 05 or 06? This is where things start to get a little blurry already. But sure. only because like so much happened so quick, right? So at some point we did, we did uh, like a few dates on the Sky's Dead tour. So it was us, the know-how from Florida, featuring Jeff Rosenstock. That's where we met Jeff. Uh, he was playing sax for them. And um, Big D, Mustard Plug, Planet Smashers. And it was like five shows in Ontario and Quebec. And then after that, we did a tour with Catch-22. And that was that tour where we had that show, The Suicide Machines. And if I'm not fucking it up, the following spring, although this may have been the spring that just happened anyways, uh, we did like a tour through the States with the Voodoo Glow Skulls. And like a handful of shows and we played international ska circus in Vegas with the toasters. And then Mm -hmm. we like basically like had like, we played one show in LA at the blue bee lounge and Chris Murray did our show. Um, who I fucking still love Chris Murray. Um, and then we like drove from LA straight up to Vancouver to start a tour with, um, big wig and big D in the kids table, death by stereo. And then mustard plug was on that tour. Like, as we headed east, like in Ontario and Quebec. So that was like, that was the first couple of years of us like touring for real. Um, and like, that was kind of all the tours we, I think that's all the tours we did for Destroy to Create. Oh no, we did one more tour in the States with Catch-22. Um, and it was like one of the first Loved Ones tours, I think. Hmm. And one of the first I Am the Avalanche tours. It was cool. Somewhere in there in 2006, you played a thing called the Ska Weekend Festival. In Tennessee. Tell me about that. Fuck, I don't know. You probably know more about it than I do. <laughs> I don't actually. No, I don't know. I just wrote that down. Okay. Um, I just remember we played the Toasters played, I think. Oh, man. Maybe Big D played. I don't know. Yeah. That was just like, I feel like that could have been part of. Maybe that might have been part of that Catch Twenty Two tour. Actually, I don't know. It's it's funny. Like I have these these eras where like things are crystal clear, and then I've like like uh, six months down the road from there, I'm like I have, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> and you did a tour with the Real Big Fish and Less Than Jake in two thousand eight, right? We did. We did a cross Canada tour with them, and the Real Deal, a band from Quebec. Um, yeah, and it was like a co headline tour that real big fish and lesson Jake were doing. That's like where we met lesson Jake. So tell me about your um, relationship to fat. How did that begin? We had a friend um, who was basically like working for, we didn't know it at the time, but he was like, he had gotten a job. Uh, our friend Rob had gotten a job uh, working for Melanie K. Melanie K was the like fat rec rep in Canada. She basically ran the fat rec office out of Toronto that they used to have. We didn't know that Rob had started working for Melanie, but Rob was a big fan of the band and he was a buddy of ours and stuff. So he, he was like 
always telling Melanie Kay about our band, I guess. And at a show that everyone except me went to, I couldn't go, I had to work or something like that. It was Wilhelm Scream, Lawrence Arms, Lagwagon, uh, a huge show in Toronto. And our friend, Katie Clark, who was running a label called Underground Operations at the time, uh, that was like the home to protest the hero and other awesome Toronto and area bands like Hostage Life and Bombs Over Providence and stuff like that. Um, she is there with Paul, Scott, and John. And she runs into Melanie Kay. And so Katie and Melanie know each other. And my guys had never met Melanie Kay. I don't think they even knew who she, she was. I didn't know what she looked like. You know what I mean? And, uh, and Katie Clark introduces the, the guys as the Flatlanders. She was like, oh, my assistant Rob won't shut up about your band. Um, <laughs> like, that's cool. Like, nice to meet you guys. Like, what are you guys doing now? What are you working on? Blah, blah, blah. And at that point, we started writing songs for The Great Awake. So we, so the guys told her that and she was like, Oh cool. Like I'd love to hear some demos or something like, and they're like, what for fat? And she was like, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're like, okay. Uh, and then, yeah, they like called me after the show. And then like, honestly, like that kicked us into high gear to be like, Oh yeah, I guess we should demo these songs. And, um, we demoed a bunch of songs. We did like, we spent, we tried to make them like good. You know what I mean? Like we spent time on these demos, like, you know, like a week or something like that, maybe two weeks with Steve. Uh, and at this point, Steve had moved into like a legit studio, uh, near Toronto. And, um, so we were like working on these demos, like three songs, you know, one of them was definitely the world files for chapter 11. One of them was definitely eulogy. Um, I can't remember what the other one was, but either way we, uh, we like sent them to Melanie. She was like, Oh, these are, these are cool. I like these songs, which blew our minds. And we were kind of, and she was like, I'll, uh, I want to send them to, to Mike. And we we're like, fat Mike. And she's like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you idiots. And, um, and then, so we, we were like, cool. That's amazing. But we never thought we'd hear anything back. And this was also at this point, this was kind of like nearing the end of the year, uh, 2006. So we were like, you know, like, I don't know, everything in the music industry just like shuts down and we didn't know, you know, whatever, what was going to happen. So, uh, we're like, cool. Like we'll never, we'll never hear back from anyone of fat, but that's so cool that we got to like show them some of our songs. And then Melanie hits us back and is like, yeah, Mike really likes these songs. Um, he's going to call you. So he called me. Um, no, hang on. I was the only one I think at the band that had a cell phone at this point. He called my house, like my parents' house left a message, no one was home. And then he had Paul's parents' uh, phone number as well. So he called his house and left a message. And Paul's mom called me on my cell phone. I was like, yeah, this guy, Big Mike, called me. <laughs> Big Mike. Like Big Mark or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, what? Um, so we were out. She called me. Uh, I call him back. And I, it was so surreal, like, just, like, talking to him. Uh, Paul and I called him and like, it was, it was so weird and cool to like hear his voice. And he was like, yeah, I like your songs. And we're like, what? Like, is it really you? <laughs> like we were kids, man. We were like 18 at this point and uh, it blew our minds. So he, anyways, he, he wanted to hear more songs. So we went back into Steve's studio and recorded like a bunch more demos, like live off the floor. And then I did the vocals after. And I remember doing vocals on Christmas Eve of 2006, like, of all these songs to like send him, like it was like more songs than even made the record. Uh, we sent him everything. And then, like I said, it was the holidays and we're like, shit, like 
everything stops. We had like two, three weeks where we were just waiting to hear. I had no idea, like, you know, like what was going to happen, if he liked it, if he didn't like it. And uh, lucky for us, like after the holiday break, he called us and was like, yeah, like, I really love these songs. Like he was like, let's just put this out. We're like, what? No, like we, we want to show you we can like make a, a real record. But it was it was mind blowing, the whole thing, especially for how young we were, you know, to like just for it to happen that way. Um, it was crazy. I mean, and it's just another example of, you know, like, a, like someone in this like position of, of, of power essentially in the music world, just to, you know, like get to pick and choose, just like stomped it. Like they didn't have to choose us and, and, and fat didn't have to choose us, but Mike liked the songs enough. He's like, it doesn't bother me that you're 18 and 19 years old. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm going to, I want to put your record out. And at one point he was like, I don't care what anyone else at the label says. I want to put your record out. We're like, well, shit, what does that mean? Can, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the meeting you had with him where he told you you had to stop playing ska? <laughs> <laughs> that is like, that is like the folklore. Right? Um, I mean, but look, but that guy writes some amazing baselines for ska and reggae songs. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, of course, of course he had nothing to do with that. I think it was, I think it was just like that, the, those, those years between like 16 and 18, 19, 20, you know, like those are such formative years in your life. You know what I mean? Like they, like things, a lot of things change. You know what I mean? If like, if you go to school after high school or just finishing high school, like that next chapter of your life, like for a lot of kids, like that's like, it's a huge shift, you know, um, oh, yeah. just sure with life in general for everyone. Right. So, I mean, I think if, I mean, since we were like also like writing music around then, like, the shift that we were experiencing in our lives was also like we were then listening to a lot of like punk, you know, in addition to the, the ska punk and ska we were listening to. So I think like those years and just being that age, like really informs the stylistic shift in us way more than anything else really ever could, you know? Um, and like for us, it was just kind of crazy that like the bands we were getting into were like the Lawrence Arms and Dead to Me, and Smoke or Fire, and None More Black, and, like, all these bands that, like, were part of that kind of, like, newer wave of fat bands at that point. So to then be found, like, kind of in that mix was crazy, you know? Um, but I, it's just a product of, like, kind of growing up on record, you know what I mean, in front of people and kind of, like... Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing when we made Inviting Light years later. We were, like, 30-year-old people at that point being, like maybe not every song has to be a super fast song <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> after doing it, you know, touring and playing music for like at that point, a long time, you know, it's, it's these, like, it's, it's these points that we all get to as, as people, I think more than anything that we're just kind of like, we keep discovering new, more and new things about music that we all love, you know, and like different kinds of music and stuff too. It all does honestly stem from like ska punk and punk. It really does. Uh, and that's still like we played the suicide machines like a month ago and it was awesome. You know what I mean? Like it was, they're still the best. And I mean, we got to open for rancid, you know what I mean? Like that was crazy. Uh, and there's so many more examples of like how the music that we really initially got into has really informed and like really like brought us to the place where we've, we've come to, but like along that ride, like, no one's ever, we've been lucky. I know you're joking about the mic thing, but like no one's ever stepped in and been like, you should do this. You should do that. People have kind of just let us do what we want. And I guess what we wanted to do is um, 
make it difficult for our fans. <laughs> <laughs> but it's because we just love music, man, and we just keep discovering new parts of it that we love, you know? Did there wind up being a part, though, when you were touring and playing, you know, still playing the ska punk songs where it started to not be fun? Not really. It was just exciting to play new stuff, too, right? It was, um, I mean, I will say if, like, if we tried to do a lot of those destroyed create songs live now, I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> I don't know if I could keep up, you know? It's really fast. I just, I had a lot sure. to say back then, I guess. <laughs> and I only had a couple minutes to get it all out. So it was, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, obviously, like, we, we, like, we're just kind of riding the wave, I think, of like new music and, and always wanting to play some new stuff and, and mixing it. I mean, you know, well, the whole time we were touring Destroy, or um, I'm sorry, the whole time we were touring The Great Awake, like, we were playing half and half, you know, Destroy to Create The Great Awake songs. Um, and at that point, we we're playing half an hour. So we were still, you know, doing a lot of songs off to straight to create, but then it's as every record that comes out, you want to work and feud new songs and it's, it's hard to play them all, you know? Yeah. So it was more of just a, a gradual progression towards the new stuff than a clean break. Oh, yeah. A lot of people think we're just like, no, that's not us anymore. And it's really like, it was, it was never that it was just that. I think, I think that the, the songs we ended up writing, like no doubt were definitely much different stylistically than the first record, but it was, it would, no, it was just, to us, to us, it was a way more gradual feeling thing because we were there for everything. You know what I mean? Like we were there for all the writing of the great awake. We're so close to it. It's a part of us. And we were there for everything. Whereas obviously everyone else outside looking in gets the one record and then the next. And it's very mm -hmm. different, you know? And, um, yeah, it was like, it felt so gradual to us that we were like, yeah, man, like we got, we got like, this respirator on the great awake, you know what I mean? Like we got mastering the world's smallest violin on the great awake. Like, I mean, not as many and, a, and two fans, not enough, <laughs> but it was, um, yeah, <laughs> but it's still like, it was, it was so gradual to us. You know, we wrote a song for that record that didn't end up making the record, not because it was a Scott Punk song, but just because like, it, we didn't think it was as strong. Actually two, uh, we didn't think they were as strong of songs. Uh, one was Open Hearts and Bloody Grins, which ended up coming out on the Scars Dead comp at first, and then Division of Spoils later on, our B-Sides thing. And then for the song called 407 that was that was cut because if we had that song on the record, it was gonna, the record uh, would have to be put on like two, like it would have to be like a double LP. And like, there's no way Fat was going to put this like 19 year old band's first record out on their label as a double LP. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut that song but that's really this the verses were just ska you know what i mean like but uh maybe even just one verse of ska. but uh that that came out on a on a seven inch and then on spoils later on and shit so it was yeah it was just like we just gradually kind of like moved into different kind of territory you know what i mean um which which led which led to other things it was cool yeah so you were saying that you were sending Fat Mike these um, demos, and he's like, "This is cool." So, so the Great Awake was. Did you actually release the what you perceived to be demos, or did you re-record the songs? No, sorry. So we we re-recorded everything. Uh, we eventually like re like released some of those demos um, a few years ago for like the tenth anniversary, as on like a seven inch. But no, we re we re-recorded everything. It was it was extremely cool and flattering to hear from a guy like Fat Mike. Like we should put this out. 
because that's that's awesome because that was just like for the most part it was just like us in a room but we wanted to show him and and fat and everyone that liked our band at that point like we could make a record you know what i mean like we wanted to make like a, a record um so yeah we re-recorded all that stuff now i i read i don't know if this is true that's why i want to ask you but i read that for the for the great awake you stomp retain rights for canada on that record yes so that record stomp put out in canada and fat put out everywhere else interesting huh i wonder why that was i mean i'm sure fat had plenty of good distribution in canada they they do and they, and, and they did then too it was just like as a for a canadian band like the the boring the boring answer to it as a canadian band is like if you put a record out as a canadian band in canada on a canadian label you there's a lot more like support for you in like the art grant because oh, the yeah, Canadian yeah. government is good. The Canadian government is like, it's been waning for a few years. Like it's, I think just cause everyone can make a record now and like no disrespect, like everyone should make a record. It's really fun. And it really shows you, you know, a lot of parts of yourself that maybe you don't, you can't discover without expressing yourself that way. So I encourage everyone to do it, but I think over the go years, make yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go make a fucking record, man. It's never been easier. Um, but I think because of that, like in part, um, that makes it harder for, or that has made it harder for the uh, Canadian government to like fund a lot of like arts and stuff. Cause so many more people are doing it and whatever. So, but yeah, I mean, for years, like Canada's had like different art grant programs that you can take more advantage of, like, you know, if you, if everything is like Canadian, which is pretty funny. Right. But um, I mean, you know, also in addition to that, and honestly, more importantly than that, like stomp, like helped us get to that point. So like when we knew it was, it was an option to like put the record out with a Canadian label, it had to be stopped, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It had to be. Um, and they were cool. They were cool about it, man. Like it was, they knew that that was a big deal for us to like get to work with fat and everything. And it, it, it really like kind of ushered in like a, the next chapter for our band, you know? So you have a new record that came out this year, um, New Ruin. Yeah. The Rat King, that's like your lead single. Yeah, that's yeah. Tell me a little bit about the song and and was it an all inspired by the Rat Queen by the Mountain Goats? Ooh, no it was not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um I mean like the lyrically the song is is pretty angry. I mean like the whole record is really. Um I mean, really, in the end, like, I think having all this time recently to sit around and kind of like feel, feel how the world has made me feel and has made, you know, my buddies in the band feel, um, it's been a pretty embarrassing time to be a human being, right? Let's be honest. Uh, people are terrible to each other and to themselves and to the planet and all this stuff. And without, I think, the tunnel vision kind of bubble life that touring kind of like really like lays out for you um and did for us for years it was easier to feel all that stuff and you know what i mean and like kind of sit in that those kind of uncomfortable moments and like just think about it and then kind of write about it and stuff so i mean essentially like racking is just a song about you know like the abuse of power and racism and white supremacy and you know like it hides in plain sight and it's there's all this progress that's been made in the modern world for sure but there's like we have so far to go 
and like the the most powerful people in the world are still typically like rich racist disgusting like white men you know what i mean and uh mm. it's embarrassing and it's fucking terrible and uh yeah it's just like a like a lot of the record is a, about like the kind of disparity of of like power in the world you know what i mean and like how i think the world would be so much better off if if like we as the people had a lot more of a say of like how the world around us worked instead of like a few people kind of doing that for us um and i think like in the past writing lyrics for for the flats has been a lot about a different kind of isolation you know in that like touring takes you away from home a lot, takes you away from your loved ones at home and you miss stuff at home and all this stuff. But it's also very unifying in that like there's, there's this whole other world out there. I mean, you know, you get to see the world uh, in a really cool and unique way, which is great, but there's also this whole other world of people out there that are like connected and, and like-minded in, in, you know, music and, and just even just in touring in general and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think with a song like Rat King and with a lot of new ruin, it's, it's similar in that it's it's kind of trying to dissect like these isolating feelings while also like calling for like ultimately calling for unity. You know what I mean? Um, and it's it's just an angry record and a wrecking is a very angry song because it's been really easy to be very angry with people in the last few years, especially, you know what I mean? None of these problems are new. None of these problems are, are brand new. These are all problems that have been plaguing us all as people for, you know, uh, hundreds of years, you know what I mean? Like racism and sexism and like, we don't want that at our shows. We don't want homophobia, transphobia, racism, sexism in our shows. We don't want, um, we don't want to live in, in a world where like we can't learn from each other. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that in the end, the record really speaks to wanting to just really kind of burn it all kind of down and start over, but like start over together. You know what I mean? As, as people. Um, and then musically, we just wanted to fucking rock the fuck out, dude. So yeah. <laughs> It is very frustrating and it's been particularly frustrating the last few years where it's like, I feel like we should be, we should be past racism. I know we're not, we should be past isms, particularly because we as a world need to deal with things like climate change and these yeah. other, we all need to come together and like save the world and save ourselves. And there's these other issues that need to be dealt with. I wish that we didn't have to still contend with, all these, all this bigotry and all these isms, but unfortunately it's the case. It's true. I mean, you have the same people that are, you know, that the same people who are police murdering, you know, typically marginalized people are also the people who are usually denying, um, that climate change is a real thing. You know what I mean? And it's these, it's uh, I know that's a, a bit of a generalization, but it's not that far off from what's actually <laughs> happening. So it's, it's true. You know what I mean? And, and it's, yeah, like I said, it's just, it's frustrating. You know what I mean? And I, and I know that I'm, you know, just a, a guy in a band. So like, no one needs to listen to me. And honestly, like no one, I mean, I think like people, I think we need more influential opinions than that of a, a heterosexual white man. I understand that as well. You know what I mean? Like, I want to learn from uh, from from people who who are not like me. You know what I mean? Um, I think there's there's value in that, and I think there's like an ego 
to the other side of it where people like, I don't know, like the other side of the coin of people that don't just don't get it and kind of don't align themselves with what, what you and I are saying, you know what I mean? And, and wanting to move past this stuff because there's like greater issues that like we, like how can we still be preaching that like, like we got to get over these differences and just learn from them. But like we, like there cannot be this kind of space for hate and, and um, there can't be this, this um, discouragement from learning from one another, but they're also like, I mean, I'm okay with like zero tolerance for fucking, you know, police brutality. And I'm okay with zero tolerance for racism and sexism and all these kinds of things. Um, I want to learn as a person. I want to move forward. I think everyone needs that. And yeah, at this point, it's just, it gets a little bleak sometimes, you know what I mean? And it's, and it's hard to kind of see that light sometimes, but I think in, um, in at least my position of being able to, uh, like I said, like think about like how the world is, has been making me feel and like put it into words and try to express it in a way that maybe it, it can kind of like turn the light on for someone else too. Um, that's, I mean, people learn a lot from, from art, you know what I mean? Um, it's sometimes there's a lot more information in art these days than there is on the fucking actual news. You know what I mean? Cause it's, hard. <laughs> it's, 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 it's difficult. You know what I mean? Um, to kind of navigate these waters, but I think at least what I can do is I can, I can use the outlet I have, you know what I mean? So that's, that's kind of, um, where a lot of it's been coming from a very frustrated place and like a place where I don't know, I don't have the answers to. I just know what I don't like to see anymore and I don't want to see anymore. And if I can, do a little tiny bit um, to try to change someone's mind, then why not? You know? Yeah. So um, just a fun little, uh, little, little piece of info for you, but I was uh, reading this interview by um, the band uh, Abrascadabra, who's a ska band from Brazil. Okay. And they uh, cited Flatliners as one of their main influences. All right, that's cool. Yeah, you're probably not familiar with them because they're a Brazilian band, but uh, I was curious if you were familiar with and had opinions about some of the newer ska bands coming out. Let me think. I mean, I think my I think the one that is getting me the most psyched is Catbite. I mean, they're they're sick. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I love Catbite. I got to see them at Fest last year, and yeah, they were awesome. I mean, at this point in my life, it's it's um i'm glad that like i'm able to get back out on the road again and i can do the thing that makes me feel like me again and like to see a band like them like especially like, that kind of ska like i love like you know like the slackers and pie tasters and stuff like that and like that kind of stuff is is so different from the stuff that like really made me fall in love with ska in the first place like it's it's different than the dark shit that i was really into and still really love but like seeing cap that at that show was awesome. Like they, yeah, they, they rip. So, I mean, they, they got my vote. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on the team. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for listening to in defense of ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, and subscribe to the podcast, wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. 
you will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying, ska now more than ever. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.